Francis's deathbed. Abortion and Trump in court. In this episode of Church and State, Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara address the fundamental problem with political modernity, cases dealing with abortion and Trump's indictment, the absurdity of climate change theories, the Vatican's new position on cremation, which harkens back to Roman paganism, Francis holding the impossible position of allowing scandalous innovations so long as they don't cause scandal. And Dr. McCall wonders if this papacy is finally in its end game status. Welcome to the final episode of Church and State with Chris Farrar and Brian McCall for 2023. Hi, Chris. Uh, it's been a, been a whirlwind year. How's your year ending for you? Hectic, as usual. There's a lot of, a lot of litigation going on involved in, and uh, there will be a brief respite around Christmas time. Well, I didn't think I didn't think litigators took Christmas off. <laughs> That's something we'll talk about when we get to the uh, litigation going on related to Trump and the J6 protesters. And the Grinch exactly. wants to the Grinch wants to steal Christmas. <laughs> the people representing Trump. So there are two, I think, big court cases that came out this week. We're going to start with the first happened in Texas, and it was decided by the Texas Supreme Court on an expedited basis in Ray state of Texas petition for writ of mandamus. The uh, nominal plaintiff is a lady named Kate Cox. And what's interesting about this is Texas has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. But this lady went to court to try to get a court order allowing her to have an abortion. Very sad situation. She has a baby that's been diagnosed with trisomy 18 which is, again, no fault of anybody's. It's the fault of original sin. It's a genetic disorder that can just occur in random cases, causes three chromosomes to form. And even if you look at the uh, Medical Association's documentation on it, you don't really know how it will manifest until the child's born and even for a period after. But it certainly can give rise to very severe defects, physical, sometimes intellectual. It can cause a miscarriage. Although I guess it's not doing that in this case since she wants an abortion. It was funny. A lot of the articles, oh, this horrible thing causes miscarriage. Well, then what does she need an abortion for? <laughs> they don't seem to get that. But even she goes to court saying, well, I need to have this because my doctors won't do the abortion without a court order. And the Texas Supreme Court very reasonably says, why are you coming to court? The law is very clear. If the doctor concludes that it, in reasonable medical judgment, the only way to save her life is this procedure, then you don't need to come to court. They don't need a court order. It's permitted. And that's up to the doctor. And basically says this doctor repeatedly asked will never say that. They won't say reasonable medical opinion is as necessary. They just say, in my good faith judgment, I think she should have an abortion, which is obviously saying two different things. But why do I think this is important? They were really trying to get the court to create an exception to the Texas statute that's not there that's broader than the life of the mother to basically say when, you know, it might be too hard to have this baby, you should, should allow it. And then for throwing to you, the last interesting thing I found is all these news articles, Vox is one of them. They state this baby, although being diagnosed with a fatal disease that is lethal, can't get it you know, have an abortion. And, and I find that ironic. They're basically saying because this baby will someday die, 
Well, I think that describes the entire human race, right? We're all <laughs> born with a fatal condition that we are going to die. Now, this baby may die sooner than others, but the, the logic of this baby will die at a young age, therefore we should kill it, is it's just amazing that it sort of escapes them. So you've done a lot of pro-life litigation. Let's get your thoughts on what Texas did here. Well, obviously the right thing and yeah. what's going to happen at the state level since the Dobbs decision is pro-aborts will double down on their efforts to reintroduce abortion, unrestricted abortion in various ways. This way was obviously not going to be successful because it was a clear departure from the terms of the statute. Hmm. Other methods will be constitutional amendments in the states, creating a right to abortion under state law, and the Supreme Court will have nothing to say about that because if a state constitution offers more protection of rights than the federal, the federal is just a floor and the state constitutions are the ceiling, so they can create rights willy-nilly and they would uh, be able to pass muster with the United States Supreme Court. But in this case, the Texas Supreme Court said... <laughs> What are you coming to us for, as you indicated? <laughs> the law is clear. It's not necessary to save her life. Therefore, she doesn't get an abortion. Mm -hmm. End of story. So she went out of state and got an abortion. Which is, I mean, ultimately the problem with the Dobbs end, you know, is that we're back to the situation where you just leave the state, as opposed to declaring everyone has a constitutional right to life and you, the state can't sanction murder. Well, what this woman was basically saying here is there should be a right not to have to drive her car across state lines to get right. the abortion. Right. <laughs> so, right. I, I argued in, in uh, Liberty, the God that failed my examination of the story that political modernity tells about itself, that the Supreme court, because it's justices have life tenure could readily hold that under the fifth amendment applied to the state's view, the 14th amendment, the unborn child has a right to life, cannot be put to death without due process of law. So if there is a process by which the child could be defended, I don't see any outcome in any case under state law where the child's life would not be saved except for some rare examples. The argument would be, of course, the Fifth Amendment right to not being deprived of life without due process is a procedural guarantee, but at least you would have that. You would have a process in place mandated by the Constitution where the child in the womb would be represented by counsel and could defend its life through counsel. And in many cases, if not the majority of cases, win the case. Right. Because the woman was just seeking an abortion for her convenience or because she simply didn't want the child. In fact, procedures could be erected with criteria for denying an abortion when the woman has no compelling reason for the abortion other than, I don't want the child. And I'm not willing to give it up for adoption. I don't want the inconvenience of nine months of pregnancy. So in those cases, under criteria that could be established for the due process rights of the unborn, these children would be saved. The woman would be required to carry the child to term. And that could happen if the Supreme Court had the courage. <laughs> it doesn't take much courage given life tenure <laughs> to hold the obvious that unborn children are lives and being. And they, like people convicted and on death row, have the right to due process before they're put to death. Well, and ironically, the Supreme Court has held previously that a corporation, which as Blackstone pointed out, does not have a body to throw in prison nor a soul to condemn to hell, has First Amendment rights 
but a living, breathing human being does not. <laughs> I always right. find that ironically. A corporation, again, that has no body to put in prison or soul to condemn to hell has more rights than a, a baby. Right. Well, this is this is the the fundamental problem with political modernity, which is that the will of the majority determines what is right or what is wrong. At the foundation of all modern political societies lies the evil of legal positivism. Yes. What is right is determined by what the law permits or what the law does not prohibit. You can do anything the law does not prohibit. You can do anything the law permits. And that's your measure of right or wrong. It could not be a more Hobbesian prescription for the legal structures of society. But that's what we have. Uh, you know, it's thumbs up for the unborn and they live, thumbs down, they die. It's a, it's a 50% plus one yes. determination by electoral majorities, now at the state level, as opposed to the national level. Well, as we said, it was an active day in the courts. We had other cases going to the U.S. Supreme Court. She said one of which uh, pleadings characterized the prosecutors of Trump as the Grinch trying to steal Christmas. So, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little about what's going on? Well, that's the case where Jack Smith is desperate to have his ridiculous trial of Trump on election denial conducted by March 24th, I believe it is. He wants to get the conviction before the election in November 2024, and he proposed a briefing schedule on his motion to expedite the appeal in the D.C. Circuit, according to which briefs would be due from Trump's attorneys the day after Christmas. Right. <laughs> Jack, Jack Smith is a clown yeah. whose reputation as the inventor of ridiculous legal theories that are later overturned is certainly in the purview of the court right now as it considers this motion to expedite both the D.C. Circuit appeal and to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit and go right into the Supreme Court on the issue of presidential immunity for official acts, the official acts in this case being Trump's legitimate questioning of an election in which tens of millions of unsecure mail-in ballots, literally impossible to verify on short notice, uh, determine the outcome of the election. But the more significant development is the Supreme Court granted certiorari in a challenge to a provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which was enacted to ensure non-fraudulent record-keeping, financial record-keeping promises after the uh, practices after the Enron debacle. That provision of that statute has been applied to protesters at the Capitol for alleged obstruction of an official proceeding by merely being in the Capitol building, when the actual statute relates to the destruction of evidence, records. Right. It was all about, evidence. it was enacted in, in light of Enron, where right. a company was covering up financial fraud. Right. And it was passed as a way of saying, you can't commit fraud financially and then cover it up so you don't get caught. I mean, the fact that they would apply it to people touring the Capitol yeah. is... Even if they were rioting in the Capitol. I mean, yes. how many times have we seen government buildings, including the Senate chamber during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, occupied by disruptive demonstrators who wanted to stop the proceedings? Even had a congressman who stopped the congressional vote by the fire, the fire alarm. alarm. Yeah, he's not being charged. So basically what this, this thug Jack Smith wants to do is turn every protest inside a government building while something is going on into a violation of a provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which relates to financial crimes. It's absolutely ludicrous. And the fact that the Supreme Court 
took up the case of a Mr. Fisher who was fighting his conviction under this provision of the act is very telling. There's no way I think that the Supreme Court is going to allow this ridiculous extension of that statutory provision to cover any protest that happens to disrupt the government proceeding. That's manifestly absurd. And that's going to impact the Trump case because Jack Smith's case against him in D.C. involves at least two counts of alleged obstruction of an official proceeding by a president who questions the outcome of an election, employing unprecedented methods of vote counting, including many, many tens of millions of mail-in ballots. And by the way, take a look at the Internet. You'll see an interview with Attorney General Barr, then Attorney General Barr, about this issue of mail-in ballots. And I think it was with a CNN reporter. And here's what Barr said back then, in essence. He said, you are playing with fire when you have elections by mail-in ballots because they're fraught with the potential for fraud and coercion. In other words, fraud, because you can gather up ballots that went to the wrong address and cast them for whoever you want, or coercion, you go into nursing homes and you get all the people in the nursing home to sign a ballot, or you go through apartment buildings and you get people to sign ballots, and you stuff them into ballot boxes and you harvest the mail-in ballots and mail them in. So he said to this CNN investigator or reporter, you're playing with fire, meaning that this election would obviously become dubious and would be vigorously contested by the loser. And obviously the loser was going to be Trump because the whole pretext of the mail-in ballots was the ridiculous COVID lockdowns. Hmm. It was too unsafe to go to a voting booth to cast a vote for a minute or two, but you could go shopping at Costco for five hours. Right. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. So that's what this is all about. So if they vacate any possible conviction that has already been obtained under this act and rule that the this provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act does not apply to protesters or other people who object to official proceedings, then half of the Trump indictment, at least, goes down the tubes. I haven't looked at it lately, but I'm not sure what's left of the case. The indictment is ridiculous, of course. It recites core political speech as evidence of felonies. Hmm. And Trump spread his lies about the election, you know, misleading the American people. What if he did? False speech is protected. So we'll see what happens. But that is a key indication that the court accepted the petition from Mr. Fisher and several other defendants. But given the two facts you mentioned, this push to be trial in March, the day before Super Tuesday, right. uh, where most primaries occur, and the sort of push to resolve all these issues and this fact that this case might fall apart. Really, I mean, the underlying all these, my view is I don't think they actually really care about convicting him in the end of the day. I think what their goal was is to create enough smoke that people think there's a fire. That is, they go it into worked. the primaries, people would go, oh, you know what? This just got a lot of mess to it. Really scary. I'm going to vote for someone else. And ironically, as you say, if that's their strategy, it's it's failing epically. I mean, the more well, they do the reason, this, the reason it's failing is there isn't actually any crime alleged in any of these right. ridiculous indictments. These are all made up, concocted offenses with which no one in the history of this country has ever been charged before. They literally concocted theories of law to find a way to indict Trump. And I find it remarkable that some of those finances have been under investigation for six or seven years has come out clean. Remember the tax returns 
mm-hmm. that Trump didn't yeah. want released. The media was in a frenzy to get those tax returns. Well, that was a year ago. Whatever happened with the tax returns? Nothing, because they were prepared by top-notch accounting firms, and they survived IRS audit. So there was nothing in the tax returns, which is remarkable, considering he's a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. They couldn't concoct some kind of a tax offense even. Meanwhile, this is backfiring for a couple of reasons. The offenses are made up, but the real offenses of the president's son, which redound to the benefit of his father, who was then vice president and is now president, those real offenses were basically stymied during the investigation phase. And now, as the Babylon Bee put it, the only thing left is that Hunter Biden is being indicted for not paying taxes on his bribes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> no, it's funny. The problem with the Babylon Bee is sometimes you're not sure if it's a real story or if it's satire. Or That's sometimes the age in which we live. It is. Satire. Someone said, yeah, well, someone once said we live in an age in which parody is impossible because the actual absurdities of things are incapable of enlargement. Exactly. Very true. <laughs> Well, well, there we have. We're going to have to watch these cases. I think uh, Trump's lawyers, our first uh, response is due on the 20th on this expedited basis. But if the court does grant that, yeah, they'll be uh, writing briefs on Christmas Day. So, By the uh, way, they, they uh, Trump now has one of the finest lawyers in the country representing him on Jack Smith's attempt to leapfrog the D.C. Uh, circuit and get the Supreme Court to decide the issue of presidential immunity for official acts. John Sauer, the man is an absolute genius. Yeah, he's the one who represented him in the impeachment hearing. If you heard Sauer in the Fifth yeah. Circuit case on yeah. the big tech censorship alliance. Oh, he was phenomenal there, yes. Absolutely phenomenal. So finally, Trump has a creme de la creme attorney representing him, and he has the respect of the Supreme Court, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, I know he's a phenomenal lawyer. I saw him testify before Congress about that, about the Missouri v. Biden case, which is, again, another case sitting in front of the Supreme Court. This could be a big year dealing with big tech censorship. Uh, yeah, I've got a case in the Third Circuit, the outcome which will largely depend upon what the Supreme Court does in Biden v. Missouri. Which, by the way, if you haven't seen that hearing, it is a- absolutely hilarious to watch because the entire hearing is taken up. It's a hearing on censorship in the federal government is taken up with the Democrats on the, the committee trying to censor the witnesses <laughs> from speaking. <laughs> Every time they have, uh, well, sour to some extent, but actually every time Robert F. Kennedy tries to speak, the Democrats move to have him silenced and not let him answer the question. It's, uh, like I said, like you Well, said, now that they're in control of everything except for a tiny uh, majority of Republicans in, in uh, the House, we see what happens when they hold the levers of power. You have a police state. Yes. These people are authoritarian lunatics. So the outcome of the next election is going to determine <laughs> – whether we remain in that condition or, or the condition gets worse. Right. Well, speaking of authoritarian lunatics, um, <laughs> we'll go over to Rome. And I guess my question to you, is this papacy perhaps finally uh, in the end game status? So a couple of things this week. One, which is a good thing, Pope Francis basically announced he was too sick to go preside at the faith pavilion of the COP28 conference. Now, what on earth a successor of Peter is going to stand at an ecumenical booth at a climate change conference is beyond me. But we were saved from his ill health from another mockery. Uh, they still read his insane drivel of a speech to these people. But at least we didn't have the embarrassment of him walking around with shakes and other leaders of religion celebrating you know, the climate change agenda. And 
going around chumming it up with that, uh, uh, that other great Catholic, John Kerry, the you know, octogenarian dictator who, uh, wants to uh, destroy your gas stove, etc. But anyway, he announces that and then the same week announces his plans for his own funeral, which is interesting. He does not want to be buried in St. Peter's where most of the recent popes of the last few centuries have been buried. Again, not all popes, but the recent tradition has been in St. Peter's near the tomb of St. Peter. He wants to be buried in St. Maria Maggiore, the basilica in, in Rome. So what do you think? Is this in its final days, this papacy? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question that he has very, very serious health situations going on, and they're getting worse by the day. If you've seen recent pictures of him, his face is all swollen because they're pumping him through uh, with steroids, I guess. We don't really know what's going on. He may have some form of colon cancer combined with a problem with his lungs. He said he had an inflammation of his lungs. I find that curious. You know what I think? I think he had COVID. Ah. Well, I think the multiply vaccinated Pope contracted COVID probably because he got multiple vaccinations <laughs> and his immune system was wrecked. Right. That's another thing that this ridiculous pontiff was going around pontificating about the moral duty to be injected with an experimental vaccine that has mm-hmm. proven to be worse than useless. You know, on this climate change issue, we have a Pope who's more concerned with the temperature of the earth than the fires of hell. Right. <laughs> And, you know, I I always ask people who talk about climate change and global warming and warn that the end is near. I always ask them this question. How exactly will it end? What exactly is supposed to happen when we cross the line and there's a point of no return? They never really articulate what's going to happen. Are we all going to go up in flames because the earth is a thousand degrees on its surface? That's not going to happen. They say the oceans will rise. Well, will they rise to the point where cities will be inundated? I don't see that happening. No one actually seriously predicts that. So what exactly is it that it will be too late to prevent if we don't reorganize all of civilization by such things as getting rid of gas stoves, personal automobiles, and drying our clothes on clotheslines? (laughs) Well, actually, speaking of the Babylon Bee on that topic, they had another good headline. It said... uh, multi-billionaires glue their private jets to the runway at the COP28 conference in protest to the use of fossil fuels. (laughs) And, of course, they'll all have gas stoves because, you know, their executive chefs will insist upon that. You can't do haute cuisine with an electric stove. You have to have the precision control of a gas jet. So they'll all have their gas stoves, of course, under exemptions that they'll craft for themselves. Well, you and I wouldn't be able to buy one. But they again, they never really tell us what it is they think they're averting. Mm. It's always this vaguely apocalyptic language about how the end is near with no description of what the end would consist of. Mm. Well, it's kind of like in our first story where I said, well, this baby has a fatal condition. They will die. Um, they're basically saying the world's going to come to an end. Well, thank you. We, we knew that. <laughs> <laughs> We've known that for thousands of years. So this cremation thing is interesting. You mentioned that in the... Uh... Yeah, so the same week he does this, he signs an order. And again, post-Vatican II, another major change in the church. For you know centuries, the church has always said you had to be buried. You could not be cremated because of its association with paganism, naturalism, and then more recently, Freemasonic beliefs. They kind of backed off that, but said, essentially... 
but you have to put the ashes in a sacred place. They have to go into a, a monument, a sarcophagus, or into a buried in a cemetery. So even if the body is cremated, it has to be put in the ground. Well, now it says, ah, you know what? But as long as you don't give in to paganism and naturalism, you can take a piece of grandma and put, them, put her on a place that was important to her. Oh yeah, and by the way, only only part of the ashes. You can right, actually, only part. <laughs> you can actually scatter the rest of the ashes. Exactly. Whatever place you would like to have them scattered, according to the wishes of the decedent, as long as you and take part of the ashes and put them on the mantelpiece in a vase or something. <laughs> well, and again, what's interesting about this is that's exactly what the pagan Romans did. I mean, the pagan Romans had their quote hearth gods, which were the ashes or the relics of their ancestors who they worshipped. And kept in a place there. So again, it's, it's sort of classic Francis. While engaging in a pagan practice, as long as you're avoiding any indications of paganism, everything's fine. Or while engaging in adultery, as long as you're not calling into question the church's teaching on marriage, everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, what, that's their standard approach to these innovations. Well, we permit the innovations provided there's no risk of scandal when the innovation itself is a scandal. Right. But again, interesting. ironically, again, like the COP28 people do, as I say, not as I do. So Pope Francis says, hey, go put your ashes in a place important to you. But he doesn't say, hey, when I die, my ashes are going to go to the World Economic Forum. Uh, place I, think, I, think, uh, I think the humble Pope should seek that humble way <laughs> of ending his earthly sojourn and that his ashes should be packed off and sent back to Argentina. <laughs> well, he knows. Which, what by the way, do. he seems totally averse to returning to. Probably yes. because he doesn't want huge crowds of people booing and throwing things at him. Yes, absolutely. But really, it all to wrap it up begs the question: If this is really in its end game, you know, where does the church go from here? I mean, what what happens upon his death with the train wreck that he's left in the hierarchy? I mean, where, what do we expect? Well, we have the, the Holy Spirit as the wild card in this situation, and stranger things have happened at conclaves than that a conservative might emerge from the next one. Maybe the liberals, the more moderate liberals, and a couple of the conservatives who are left will somehow, after a number of votes, prevail upon electing someone who isn't a lunatic as the next pontiff. And or who is that, a Catholic? No. Yeah, yeah, maybe another <laughs> Benedict XVI. Maybe a Catholic. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about the power of the papacy to end the crisis almost immediately. Look what Benedict did with a couple of acts of governance liberating the Latin mass, lifting the excommunications of the bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. The restoration was already underway. And that was a pope who was rather timid about it. And still, mm. look what he was able to accomplish. So we don't know. We don't know what will happen. I mean, humanly speaking, it looks hopeless. But the situation of the church has been hopeless before. And there has been a miraculous turnabout in salvation history. The reconversion of the entire Western world after the fall, the Roman Empire being the most prominent historical example that happened before it will happen again before the world finally does enter its final days. Absolutely. So again, as we, this is our last episode this year, it looks like 2024 on, on every front is going to be a, uh, a pivotal year, a really uh, important year. All these Trump cases will come to a head. We'll have the election uh, by the end of the year and, you know, possibly, uh, you know, uh, a conclave in the next year. So this could be a really critical year. Oh, this will be a year in which we will see things that the eyes of men have never before beheld. We're going to, we're going to see absolutely unprecedented events in church and state. 
Well, and if and we don't want to let that depress us, as you know, Saint Therese always used to say she longed to live in the end times. Again, we don't know. We're obviously in the end times, but where in the end times we are, we don't know. But interestingly, rather than saying I don't want to be here, we have the attitude of the little flower. We should be happy to live in such times because it's in, to you know whom many trials are given, much grace is given. So it's it's an honor in a sense to live through uh, these times. Especially when we recognize that the end of the world comes for each one of us inevitably, anyway. That's right.、Uh, I said my grandfather used to say, "I don't really care if the world ends because I'll be dead anyway." Two other words have never been said. Great way to end the, end the year and look ahead to the new year. A blessed Christmas to you and yours, though, Brian. You too, Chris. Hope you're not writing a brief on Christmas Day. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to avoid that. <laughs> we'll see you next year. Church and State with Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara is brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. The message of Fatima is the solution for our time. Only she can help us. It is therefore urgent that we live according to Our Lady's message and share it with everyone we know. For more resources and to support this vital apostolate with your donation. Visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us. Long live Christ the King. Thank you.